So, uh, if you are newish, you've joined on a goodish, a good week because we just started a new series. We got into it last week. I hope you're beginning to get the heart and the flavour and the feel of this new series called Spotlight. As we shine a spotlight each week on a particular character or attribute of. God and really um, my heart and prayer and, and sense of what God's saying to us really through this series is to, you know how in the Psalms you might see in your Bible often says sailor, ever seen that? That kind of expression, the Hebrew behind that is the idea of, of stopping, of pausing, of worshipping, of reflecting which of course is what the Psalms do and I kind of feel like this series is a bit of a sort of sailor moment for us as a, as a church as a, for a term, you know in the autumn We'll be launching a vision series. We've got a, a new leadership team now here at the church. They'll be launching an alpha, alpha course and so forth. The autumn will in some ways be kind of foot to the pedal again, foot to the floor again to, to the activity, if you like, of, 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 of engaging with God and the mission that he's called us to. But in the meantime, I feel like this summer is more of a kind of sailor moment to pause, to take stock, to look at God, to enjoy him. And I really, my heart and prayer is that you'll do that, that spiritually, it's like we're going to look up and behold God in a fresh way, get a bigger view of God. I really want to help you get a bigger view of God, that you can know him as he is, worship, worship him as he is, and follow him as he is. That's the kind of heart behind this series, which is why last week I said the question is basically, what is God like? Which is a pretty big question to ask, and one that humanity's been asking in different ways for centuries. Well, the question this week is a kind of derivative of that, and it's this, where is God? Where is God? Which again, people have asked for all kinds of reasons over the centuries. People have asked it from a philosophical standpoint, kind of a, were God to be true, where would he be? Philosophical angle. People have asked it from a, from a skeptical point of view or even a defiant point of view. Well, if there is a God, where is he? You know, take it to its extreme version, kind of Time magazine there, iconic um, front page in 66. God is dead, as Time magazine announced. There can be a, a defiant or, or skeptical way of asking, where is God? Philosophical, skeptical. There can be a desperate reason or desperate sense of asking where is God? Many Christians over the centuries, many, in the, many people in the Bible have asked where is God? From a point of view of desperation, from a point of view of, of desperately needing his intervention and, and, and wrestling with suffering and doubt and so forth. And there can be a, a, a passionate reason to ask where is God? And by that I mean a passionate person asks, where is God? Not from the point of view of, 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 of doubt or desperation, but from the point of view of confidence. You can ask or you can say, where is God? From a point of view of confidence. You can say that this morning. You know God to be here. Where is he? I want to meet with him. So there can be a reason to ask that question from the point of view of passion, from the point of view of confidence. I, I trust there are many of us doing that this morning, asking, where is God? From the point of view of, I know he's here. I know he speaks. I know he's good. I know he's alive. I want to encounter him for fresh. Where is God in that sense? But listen, whatever you might ask that question, I believe this passage in the Bible is going to really, really speak to us and help us to answer the question, where is God? Psalm 139 is the kind of classic place to go and the place that we're going to camp out at in this morning. Last week I was leaping all over scripture like a like a crazy thing, but this week we're going to kind of more camp out in one particular passage, although there'll be some small leaping uh, along the way. But we'll mainly be in Psalm 139, so a wonderful piece of scripture, and the psalmist writes this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. 
You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. It's kind of the Hebrew word or understanding for, for the grave or for death or for life beyond death. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Where is God? And this passage tells us what all of scripture declares to be true, which is that God's presence is described as his omnipresence. The answer to the question, where is God, is God is omnipresence. That's the character or the attribute this morning. Omni meaning all. Therefore, the teaching is that God is present in all his fullness, all of the time, everywhere. So wherever anything might be, God is present in all of his fullness. It's kind of a bit of a mind-bending concept. We're going to look at it over three little steps. The context, the enormity of God's omnipresence and the intimacy of God's omnipresence. The context for it, the enormity of it, but also the intimacy of God's omnipresence. Number one, the context for it. You see, not only does the passage tell us about God's omnipresence, it also kind of provides for us a context for other attributes of God. Um, and by providing that context, it therefore helps us understand more about his omnipresence. So we also see from this passage that God is omniscient. Some fancy theology words being thrown out this morning. You might have caught it in verse one. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Verse four, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it altogether. So God's omniscience means that he knows everything. Everything there has been, everything there is, and everything there will be. And there are three omnis, you might know, within the character and the attributes of God, which you could put like this, and I hope this, this little slide helps, uh, shows you. God knows all that needs to be done. That's his omniscience. God has the power to do all that needs to be done. That's his omnipotence. And God is always present wherever he needs to be to do what needs to be done. That's his omnipresence. And we'll come back to his knowledge and his power later on in this series. And they're all kind of mind-bending concepts in a way. But I think his omnipresence is perhaps the hardest in some ways to get our head around. Because we have some sort of context for omniscience and omnipotence in that we know that lots of knowledge exists. So the idea that God could have all of it, we can kind of track with that. Omnipotence, we know that lots of power exists with certain people, organizations. The idea that God would have all power, we can kind of track with that. But his omnipresence is of a different case in many ways. That's the idea of God being a being who is not constrained anyway by time or by space. That he's always present with all of his attributes in every part of the universe at all times. And we don't have a grid for that. 
Mark Goddard, who many of you know, has um, recently become an elder here at King's Church. He's not here this Sunday. He texted me in the week saying, given that I am not omnipresent, I cannot be with my father-in-law and you on Sunday. He's with his father-in-law. We don't have a grid for something that can be fully present in all parts of the universe at all times, which is why it's not inappropriate to join in with the psalmist in verse 6 of 139 and say, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. That's an appropriate, worshipful response. But the passage also does help us understand how his omnipresence is possible. In fact, it gives us another one of his attributes that we won't look at so specifically in this series, which is God's spirituality, which is not his walk with himself. It's the fact that he is spirit. Verse seven of the passage said, where shall I go from your spirit? Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is spirit. That means he's without material substance or physical body. He is invisible. Obviously, God revealed himself in the physical body of Jesus, but the triune one God is is without material substance or physical body. Paul in 1 Timothy 1.17, puts it like this. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And then in chapter six of the same letter, he says, God whom no one can see or has ever seen. God is spirit. And if he were not a spirit being, he could not be omnipresent. He's only able to be omnipresent because he's not constrained by a body or by space or even by time. Now, just to be clear, we're not talking about something called pantheism, which says that God is in everything and everything is in God, like God is in this lectern. It's not what we're saying, because God is distinct from creation. We're not talking about deism, that says that yes, God is distinct and supreme, but he is absent and detached. It's not what we're saying. And we're not talking about dualism that says that God and creation have always existed alongside each other all the time. We're saying that God is a unique, eternal spirit being that he created and continues to personally sustain all things, not least because he is omnipresent, fully present everywhere at all times in the fullness of his character and breathe. (laughs) Pantheism, omnipresence, omnipotence, what are we trying to say? Now people have tried to illustrate God's omnipresence in different ways, but there's a challenge. The finite will find it hard to illustrate the infinite by definition. God's omnipresence is entirely other and we only have what we know to be able to illustrate something about God that is almost unknown. But people have tried. People have suggested that you could use This may or may not work, who knows. You could use a piece of toast, people have said. Which is pretty cold, because it was was toasted at half past six this morning. And people have said, if you take some butter and you spread it across the toast, I'll do a really good job, or the best job I can. People said, that's a bit like God's omnipresence, because he's the butter, And the toast is creation, and that shows you that God's presence covers the whole of creation. 
Okay, that's kind of helpful to an extent, but obviously you're all looking a bit skeptical because of course it falls far short of the actual illustration of omnipresence because of course the butter is not all over the toast. Can you see the gaps? It's not all over the toast in the same amount. There are parts of the parts of the butter are in parts of the toast that aren't elsewhere, and also the butter is not within the toast. So it doesn't really get us very far to illustrate the true nature of omnipresence. So, anybody hungry? Some people have suggested you could use a, a sponge and some water. So you take your water and you take your sponge and I saturate, I saturate the sponge in the water, the sponge being creation, the water being God, and it shows us God's omnipresence because the water is throughout the sponge. And it's a bit better than the toast because the water gets all the way throughout. But of course it falls short, doesn't it? because parts of the water are in parts of the sponge that therefore aren't in other parts. And there are probably some bits of the sponge inside that haven't got the water in them either. So it doesn't get us to the fullness of this incredible teaching, this incredible truth that God is fully present in all of himself in every single part of the universe. But maybe it gets us a little bit. But it kind of means we probably end up rejoining with John Calvin, who said the finite cannot contain or grasp the infinite. Jesus himself said in Matthew 11:27, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. There is a degree to which God is unknowable. And yet, if you know the rest of that verse, Jesus says, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him which is what Jesus has done. So it's kind of this, this double truth or simultaneous truth is a better way of saying it, that God's at the same time unknowable and he's also knowable. And because he's knowable through Jesus, through the word of God, to some degree through creation, what we see around us, we can press in to understand more about his omnipotence, not le- um, omnipresence, sorry, not least the enormity of his omnipresence. Something of the context for it. What about the enormity of it? Because I want us to really grasp that before we get to the personal or more personal side of things. This has helped me. I hope, I hope and pray it helps you. Verse 7, back into our original passage, Psalm 139, if you are following. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The psalmist is declaring that God really is present everywhere, that there is nowhere that he isn't. And his poetic language means there's nowhere that he isn't. He's in the heights and the depths, in the oceans. He is present this side of the grave and the other side of the grave, in heaven and on earth, on land and in the sea. And a suitably dramatic ringtone is exactly what was needed to hammer home the point. The psalmist is trying to tell us, in fact, what all the scripture tells us. That God is this fully present. Deuteronomy 4.39, the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There's no other. 1 Kings 8.27, I love. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him. But let's just hone in on one example of the enormity of God's omnipresence from this particular verse. And it's this. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you are there. 
So I thought, well, where is the uttermost part of the sea? What is the deepest part of the ocean that we have? I discovered, you may already know this, that the deepest part of the ocean is the Mariana Trench. So if you know your geography, find your, find your, draw a line between uh, Papua New Guinea and Japan, take you to the Philippine Sea, about bang in the middle between those two countries is the Mariana Trench. It's the deepest part of the ocean, at least, that we know about. It's 11,000 meters deep. So let's put that into context. I've just started doing a bit more swimming. I go swimming each Monday with my little six-month-old, which is great fun. She practices her front crawl, does a few lengths, all that sort of thing. And we have a great time together. And it struck me that the Kingfisher Pool in Kingston is about two meters in depth at its deepest point. Therefore, the depth of the Mariana Trench, deepest part of the ocean, the uttermost part of the sea, is 5,500 Kingfisher swimming pools stacked on top of each other. It's very, very deep. So, I want you to go in your mind's eye to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, the uttermost part of the sea. If you did that, given that pressure would crush you 170 meters, you're going to need a submarine. Maybe a bit like this one, which I gather did go to something like that depth. So, in your mind's eye, hop into said submarine, leave behind the sun and heat of the Philippine Sea, and start descending through the depths. You're all expecting some fancy visual uh, thing. You haven't, it's just the, the submarine. At about 1,000 meters deep, so that's 500 meters swimming pools stacked up of each other, it now gets so dark because sunlight can't reach it. So you've got your light, maybe the submarine, but it's pitch black at 1,000 meters deep, 500 swimming pools. At just under 3,000 meters deep, getting pretty deep now, you might bump into something called the Cuvier Beaked Whale, because 3,000 meters deep is the deepest that any mammal has been um, spotted swimming. That's about 1,500 swimming pools deep. Keep going. Get down to eight, are you doing this in your mind's eye? Going down, 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 down. Get down to 8,841 meters deep. That is the depth at which if you got Mount Everest, turned it upside down, plunged it into the ocean, it would get down that far. But you are still, at that depth, you're still a thousand swimming pool depths away from the bottom. It's a long way down. So keep going in your submarine. And you get all the way down to the bottom, maybe with a slight bump. You get down to the bottom, to the uttermost part of the sea, to quote the psalmist, almost seven miles from the surface. And what does omnipresence tell us? It tells us that God is there, fully there, fully present in all his attributes. He's always been there. He will always be there, sustaining all things as he sustains the whole universe. If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is vast, and he's mysterious. And in that sense, he's beyond our comprehension, that you could take a trip to the uttermost part of the sea, at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, and you could talk with, and commune with, and hear with, and experience God as much there as you do anywhere else. But is God only vast, and mysterious, and beyond comprehension? What about the intimacy of God's omnipresence. Now, it's interesting that the psalmist from that passage doesn't see any contradiction like maybe some of us do when it comes to, on the one hand, being reduced to awestruck worship at the enormity of God's omnipresence, 
kind of, he's aware of his finiteness and limitation. It's why he says, such knowledge is too much for me. I can't bear with it or cope with it. You're, wow. But at the same time as he does that, kind of, you're God and I'm not, awestruck worship, he's also able to personally experience God's loving, intimate presence at the same time. There's no contradiction for him. Verse five, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. You ever thought, looked at that verse, thought, how can God be both in front of me, behind me, and with his hand upon me? Well, because he's omnipresent. He is all places at all times fully. Verse eight, if I ascend to heaven or descend to Sheol, death, the grave, post-death, or the uttermost parts of the sea, Mariana Trench, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. That is incredibly personal, intimate language. And it speaks of a couple of things that I think God would highlight for us this morning about what you can expect to find personally this morning, now, in the presence of God. Two things, direction and protection. Direction and protection. You notice what the psalmist says? Even there, the uttermost part of the sea, your right hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall lead me. There is nowhere, there's nowhere that God's presence cannot bring direction, cannot bring leading. You can be at the bottom of the Mariana Trench or indeed the emotional equivalent, the depths, the darkest places, the places where it seems no one is. There is nowhere where God cannot bring the leading and the direction that you need. He's there, ready to place his hand upon you and lead you. Like I say, you could be in the emotional equivalent of the Mariana Trench, a bleak and dark place, thinking, God, I don't know where to go. This place is so dark. And the promise of God's presence is, is he's there to lead you. I wonder if any of us need leading this morning, and by that I mean direction, a sense of a, a, a crossroads or a space of dark. I'm just not quite sure where to go. I can't do nothing, because nothing will be a decision in itself. What do I do? What step do I take? And the doctrine of God's omnipresence is not a dry and dusty doctrine. It's the truth that he's present to lead, to place his hand upon you. In fact, why don't I just do that now? Why don't I just pray? If you feel like, you know what? Mariana Trench or not, depths of darkness or not, or somewhere in between. If you feel like, do you know what? I, would love, I need to know the leading, the direction of God. Do you just want to raise your hand and I'll just pray. Let's just be family together and we can pray for God's leading to come. And if you're next to that person, why don't you represent something of God to them? Put your hand upon them, just like he does for us, as long as they're okay with that. Lord God, I thank you that you are here with us, you're present, especially present in your gathered church. I thank you there is nowhere that you're not present. And I thank you that the promise of this text and this doctrine tells us that your presence brings leading, brings direction. And so I pray for each person now with their hand raised. I pray for your leading to come in these moments. I pray that it might come through the person that's praying for them perhaps. I pray for the prophetic to be uttered, spoken, sensed in these moments through that person, in worship, through this teaching, whatever it might be. And I pray for a sense of faith to rise for the way forward.
And I pray that in your name, Jesus, your mighty, powerful name, the one who made God known and present to us. Amen. Let's expect to keep hearing God as well during worship in a moment. The second thing that we see that God's omnipresence brings from this psalm is not just his leading or his direction, but his protection. Your right hand shall hold me. Your right hand shall hold me. Uh, I don't think I've overdone the Isabella baby girl illustration so far. I don't think I have. It's better than the sport ones. Um, but I, for some reason, I hold her in my left hand. I don't know why. I'm right-handed, but I always hold her in my, in my left hand. Um, and it's amazing the, diff- amazing the sense of, I know it's a cliche, but you really do sense something of God's hand when you're holding this little thing, which if you were to drop, which you could so easily, all would be unwell, to put it mildly. And also there are times, she's quite a feisty little one, where she'll lean back, like, well, I could drop you if you want to. This time where she scratches my face. <laughs> you feisty one. But I hold her. And that holding just guarantees her protection. Sometimes it brings the comfort that she needs. Sometimes it brings the protection that she needs. But the holding hand of a father, and, and I'm only a tiny, tiny, tiny glimpse of the father, that's what the psalmist is getting at. That God holds you in his presence. Even when you lash out at him, he holds you. Even when you want to run away from him and and flail away and get somewhere else, he holds you. Because his presence is everywhere. There's nowhere that he's not. There's nowhere that God's not. And I wasn't going to say this this morning, but I do feel it's it's kind of just come back out of my notes that I scribbled scribbled out, so I'll say it. I love the story of Jonah for a number of reasons, but one, because it spoke to me this week. Jonah was a man who chose, the text tells us, to flee from the presence of the Lord. That's what the text says. He said, I'm not going that way, I'm going that way. He's supposed to go east, he got on a boat and went west from Israel to Spain. He fled from the presence of the Lord. And what did he find? It can't be done. Because God's presence was in the storm, and his God's presence was in the whale. Surprise, surprise. The presence of God is in the uttermost parts of the sea. And Jonah found that to be literally true. I just was thinking this morning, I, I sense God might be saying there'll be some of us this morning who are on the, on the run from God's presence. And you know what? It's very possible to be in church and to be on the run from God at the same time. Because if you've done it for any time at all, you learn the things to say and how to still make it happen. But it's possible in here to be physically present, but actually running from God's presence in some way. All kinds of reasons for that. can be just outright disobedience. We just don't want to bow the knee before God. can be shame. We feel like for some reason we're just beyond the pale for some reason. Uh, It can be fear. We fear what God might ask of us or call us to if we fully embrace and submit to his presence. Don't run from God. Because he's already there. <laughs> it's not just, he's not just a God that pursues, though he is. He's not just a God that comes with, though he is. Because he's omnipresent, he's already there. I discovered this this week in Ezekiel 48, verse 35. God is called Jehovah Shammah. means the Lord is there. He's there. Don't run from God. I would plead with you. Return to him this morning. 
either for a fresh time or for the first time. That's, that's the nature of becoming a Christian is that we respond, is that we say basically in, in some way I've been running from God. I have rejected or ignored or diluted the presence of God. I repent of that and I come back into the presence of the thing that I was made for originally. But as Christians we do it a lot of the time as well. We just move away from the presence of the Lord. Maybe in small ways, it's not dramatic. You're not running in the sense of losing your faith or outright disobedience, but it's just the presence of God is being kept at arm's length. I wonder if God's speaking this morning. The Lord is there. And of course, it's another amazing angle, amazing reason to love the gospel. Because God has made himself known. In fact, the invisible God has made himself known. The Bible says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You look at Jesus, and that's what this invisible, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent spirit God is like. And that's why he can be trusted to come to for the first time or to come back to for a fresh time. I was thinking, it's amazing. Jesus made a decision or the Trinity together made the decision that Jesus would lay aside his omnipresence. Now he didn't lay aside his divinity, he was fully God the whole time, but he made a decision to become limited to a body and time and space. How humble is that? I just... Yeah, that the, the triune God that's existed in all eternity, for all time, outside of time, including the word, Jesus, the one who was present in that creation, making it happen, said, in order to help these finite created beings know what God is like, I'm gonna lay aside my omnipresence and be present in a limited way, be limited by a physical body and by where he could be and, and so forth. I know he could have been anywhere he wanted to be. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. It's part of the mystery of the incarnation that he was fully God and fully man. And the incarnation is wonderful, but the, the gospel itself, the good news of what Christ has done on the cross, what did Jesus have to endure? The absence of the presence of the Father. The father had to turn his face away from Jesus because he was absorbing, where he was taking upon himself the horror of our sin. The father removed his presence from Jesus and it was horrific for Jesus. And why did Jesus do that? Not because he was just told to do it. He didn't lose the presence of the father and absorb the wrath of the father because he was just kind of, I guess I better had. He's God. So he made a willing, joyful choice to go through this thing, to lose the presence of God for a moment and instead receive righteous, pure, holy wrath. Why? To bring you into the presence of God. That's his love for us and his love for you. Is he was isolated for those horrendous moments for joy for the joy of bringing you and I into the presence of God. So it's a personal thing. It's a deeply, deeply personal, personal thing. 
I wonder whether the band could come and join me afresh. Help us to respond. Uh, didn't really expect to get sort of taken as- askance, as it were, by, by this. And I, I do hope I'm helping you to step into worship and into God's presence in a moment. And we're just going to worship him because he's worthy of worship. He's the one in front of whom we all appropriately say, wow, you are God and, and I'm not. The knowledge of who you are is just too much for me to attain. But he's not distant. He's here, present, present to lead you, give you direction, present to bring you comfort and protection, and present to call you home for the very first time, perhaps this morning, through repentance, you step into the presence of God fully, but also for a fresh time. Those of us who are doing a Jonah in our own heart, either subtly or dramatically, come home this morning. Come home to his presence. And no forgiveness, and no cleansing, and no freedom, and no joy. It says that in God's presence there are pleasures forevermore. Joy forevermore. Let's stand together and sing and worship. And as you sense God speaking, come and share that with Mike and help us to respond. Lord God, I thank you for, for who you are. I thank you for your, uh, yeah, thank you for your presence. Thank you that you have never, ever been anything other than fully present throughout the universe, sustaining all things. Thank you that you made yourself specially and definitively present in the temple, in the Old Testament, and in the church, this side of the cross, and in each believer. We thank you that you're with us, and I pray for us to know that more. I pray for us to know you better in these moments, not just to know about you, but to really encounter and experience you. I pray for a leading of your presence where it's needed, comfort of your presence where it's needed, and the welcome home of your presence that is needed. And I pray for us to know your presence this week as well, in all that we do, on the train, through the washing up, in the parenting, in the loneliness that some of us might experience. I pray for us to know and experience the tangible, eternal, infinite, joyous, pleasurable, wise, extraordinary presence of God this week. Amen.